Now with the kids out, maybe you feel like you can breathe a little bit. Maybe not. First service actually was a little bit more packed than this, if you can imagine. Um, but it uh, looks like we do have some empty seats, so that's good. Uh, if, uh, if you're new here, uh, my name is Dan Deckard. I'm the teaching pastor here, and uh, it's my privilege to bring you this morning's message. And um, I also want to say a special welcome to those of you who are, who are just visiting um, here. Um, we're thankful that you chose Parkway to come celebrate Easter with. And there's a lot of good churches in town, and we realize you could have joined another church to celebrate, but you chose us. So um, we're grateful for that. And uh, I also want to say a word to those of you who feel like you're here against your will. Uh, you know, I promise you, you'll survive, and uh, we won't uh, cram anything down your throat. Um, we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we're here. And um, hopefully you'll sense the joy in the room. There's a lot of clapping, and, and maybe if you've never been in a church where there's clapping or some shouts, you know, that's actually biblical, you know? Shout for joy, all the earth, or clap. You know, so because we're here to rejoice. Well, um, I have to say uh, that when I found out that Easter fell on April 20th, I kind of started to laugh inside. Uh, One reason, um, and this isn't really why I laughed inside, but you know, my oldest son turned 17 today, so if you see him, give him a hard time. Um, He turned 17, and he's kind of got the Billy Idol look. If you're laughing, want to know who he is? Sorry, Daniel, I just totally embarrassed you. but uh, I don't know if you know this, but, but April 20th is also Adolf Hitler's birthday. <laughs> My wife and I are praying those two birthdays don't have any connection, if you know what I mean. <laughs> a little slow on that one. It's not going to happen. But it's also, this is uh, also true that today is National Weed Day. Did you know that? All the pot smokers and tokers are, you know, celebrating. Well, we are claiming... As Christians, this day is Resurrection Day. All right? Resurrection Day. <laughs> and it's pretty awesome to think that, that people all around our world, um, by the millions, um, of every ethnicity in every country, are gathering to celebrate this event. Because it, it is what we believe to be the single most important event of human history. And without it, the whole of Christianity crumbles. It would cease to exist if, if that, that truth was not true. If Jesus didn't rise, uh, Christianity itself would disintegrate into a thousand pieces. I mean, if Jesus did not rise, that meant that his sacrifice was not accepted by God. That means we are still in our guilt and still in our sin. And we still stand condemned before God. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, that means death still reigns, and this is all there is. That's why the Apostle Paul said, and he meant it when he said it, he says, if if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are of all people, we Christians, are to be most pitied. Because all we're doing is we're worshiping a dead man. But, and this is what this morning is about, The whole of the Old Testament anticipated his resurrection. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that declares his resurrection. And the whole of the New Testament assumes his resurrection. That's why we celebrate the simple fact that he rose from the dead. Now, I know for some of us, the idea of Jesus rising from the dead is a bit like a book in our mental bookshelf that we pull out once a year. 
got a little dust on it and remember what the resurrection is, and then we put it back. Um, it's something that we acknowledge maybe to be true, and, and maybe, maybe that's what you do is you come and you acknowledge. That's why you're here this morning, to acknowledge that he's risen from the dead. I'd like to say that what the Bible wants of us is for us not just to acknowledge that fact like a cold piece of truth on a shelf of our mind, but to realize it. Such a great word. You know, I've been thinking about it. Realize has that word real in it. And when we realize something, it means that we've become inwardly aware of a truth that changes us, you know? And um, I'm sure that you can look back in your life and realize there are certain points where you realize something to be true that you kind of knew intellectually, maybe as a fact. I remember the first time I flew to, flew to London, England. I, I had always heard, I was 20 years old, went with my college group, and, and before that time, I'd always, like you, I took the history classes in elementary school and junior high and high school about what happened in England and now the kings and the queens and the, and the castles and let's see what else, Stonehenge and all the stories and... James Bond and all those things, you know, come to mind in England. But it was, to me, kind of an intellectual fiction, a historical myth, if you will. It's like I, I knew on an intellectual level it was there. It had to be there. But it was almost like it was kind of a fairy tale, too, you know, until I landed at Heathrow Airport. And, you know, and I remember standing with, then she was my girlfriend, now she's my wife, in the evening, looking over the Thames River at, at the clock tower and seeing um, uh, uh, Westminster Abbey, and uh, standing in St. Paul's Cathedral, and just surrounded by majesty. And I remember overwhelmed. It went from kind of this cold fact in the back of my mind to a realization that it's real. Um, Another realization that some of you may connect with, you know, most of us treated our parents horribly when we were teenagers. And we insisted we weren't at that time being horrible. In fact, we thought we knew better than they until we get older and we look back, and many of us have had to go back and confess, I'm so sorry for treating you like garbage when I was a teenager, right? Well, you did that because you came to a realization that you didn't have back here. And some of you parents are waiting for that moment for your kids to return and say, I treated you horribly. And some of you kids need to, you know, maybe realize it right now is where you're at. But that's a realization or realizing, oh, man, I'm late to work. And all of a sudden, time dawns on you and you speed off to, to your workplace. That's a realization. And, and uh, the resurrection isn't supposed to be a fact, a cold fact in our mental bookshelf. It's supposed to be a realization of the soul. And when it does, it begins to change your view of everything. Life, death, meaning purpose. Why am I here? It does things with fear. I mean, it changes, begins to change everything to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, to realize he rose from the dead. And there's a story, my favorite story, um, resurrection story in the New Testament, um, that kind of has that idea of realization about it. Uh, A woman who faces facts that comes to a realization. And as I said, it's one of my favorites. And, and it's a story of, of Mary Magdalene. Maybe you, you remember the name. Maybe you've heard it on TV in one of the movies about Jesus. Mary Magdalene is um, next to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is one of the most remarkable and honored women in the New Testament. Two Marys, different Marys. But this is Mary Magdalene. Um, what we know of her from the New Testament is that she was a woman who was crippled. She was an invalid and that... that um, 
that physical defect, we're told, was caused by demonic influences. Um, so you can imagine, um, some of you know people who are invalids or crippled and who experience the torment of their, their um, broken condition. Um, this is Mary Magdalene. Um, underneath this uh, crippling effect of these demonic influences, and, and they plagued her, assume, assuming for her life, and, until, until Jesus comes into town. Jesus comes into town, and he touches her with the power of his love. And we're told that seven demons were cast out, and she was made whole again. Now, just as a sidebar, Jesus still does heal. He heals people from addictions to drugs and alcohol. He people, heals people's relationships, heals their hearts. He even heals them physically. Maybe not in every occasion, but he still does those things. Amen. He did that in this woman's life, Mary Magdalene. And in response to her deliverance and the sense of the power of his love, I think, I would argue, she probably becomes his most devoted follower. Um, she's listed almost always in the first. Whenever women are listed, she almost comes first. Almost always comes first. Uh, she would have followed him, um, listened to his messages, listened to his teachings. We're told that she financially supported some of his ministry. She apparently was a woman of, of some wealth, despite her, despite her former crippled condition. She's one of the only people who stood by him at the cross, watching as the one she loved was gasping for air, you know, um, marred, bruised, beaten, bloody. She watched him take his last breath. And uh, no doubt in those moments, her, her, her love of her life, Jesus, was, was killed and her hope was crushed. And she would be the first one to the tomb on Sunday morning. And she would be the first one to whom Jesus would reveal himself as alive. That's why she holds a remarkable place. And I want to read you a piece of her story, the resurrection story in, in John chapter 20. Um, this comes from the Gospel of John. And um, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to put it on the screen behind me so you can follow along and see that, hey, this actually is in the Bible, what Dan's saying. All right? This is what the Gospel of John records. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. That's a woman who was chomping at the bit to see her, her beloved dead corpse, but someone she loved to help um, in the anointing of the body and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of the men were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, Peter was older and slower, <laughs> and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, being the bold one, um, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up uh, in a place by itself. And just so you know, that, like the dimension of the, where the linen clothes, the grave clothes were, is a clue. Had someone taken the body, they would have taken it wrapped. But there were the grave clothes, and then the one around the head, taken off, and then nice and neatly folded and put it in a separate place, suggests that someone didn't need it anymore. That's kind of the, the hint. And continuing on, 
Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. So simply seeing the empty tomb, that disciple whom Jesus loved, which many, most people believe that's a John's way of referring to himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. He believed on the basis of the fact that the body wasn't there. Continuing on, verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must arise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. This is Mary Magdalene. And as she wept, she, stopped, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Uh, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, what I just read and also with one assumption, she faced four facts about the resurrection of Jesus. One that I think we can assume is that because she was a follower of Jesus and listened to his teachings, she would have heard him say to his disciples on a number of occasions, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. He said those words to his disciples, I will rise again after I die. Now, I don't know what else those words could mean but apparently the disciples didn't get it. There was no walking dead back then, so nobody was going to think of zombies, okay? He's I'm going to rise in three days. So she would have understood the words, but for whatever reason, she didn't get it. She didn't realize it. Fact number two, she sees an empty tomb, grave clothes. You think maybe she should have just suspected at that moment, there's the grave clothes, maybe... He's not dead anymore. But, for whatever reason, she doesn't realize it. Fact number three. When she looks in there, she sees two angels. Now, in the Bible, whenever angels show up, whenever heaven comes to earth, stuff's happening. You know, angels come, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. That's a bad thing. You know, Jesus is born. Angels show up. Heaven shows up. Here's Mary looking into a tomb, and there are angels. Heaven has showed up. Maybe she should have at that moment caught a clue. <laughs> like, heaven's here. Maybe something amazing has happened, but she doesn't get it. Fact number four. She turns around, and there's Jesus standing right in front of her, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's a gardener, which, ironically, the very first gardener in the Bible is God who makes Adam a gardener. So in a sense, he is the gardener. But she doesn't recognize him. Perhaps her eyes are filled with tears, or maybe she doesn't recognize him in his transposed body. That is, a body that's gone from a, gone from a corruptible state to an incorruptible state. She doesn't recognize him. So there's all these facts about him that should lead her to the conclusion, like it led John, that he's alive. But she doesn't until Jesus says one word. I just love what this says about Jesus in speaking to individual people that he loves with tenderness, intimacy, and knowledge. 
the one word that he says to her is her name. It says, Jesus said to her, after all of these facts, he says to her, like, Mary. That's, that's like when, when a person who knows you the best and loves you the most says your name in a unique inflection and intonation. It's just, you know it's them. You know, I could hear my mom in a crowd calling my name because I knew that was her, you know? She loved me. She knows me. And I knew when she was mad at me, too. <laughs> Here, Jesus, with all that, he knows her. He loves her. Speaking in his own inflection, he says, Mary. And at that moment, with that personal touch of a word, of a name, of recognition, she realizes, there's that word, she realizes that he's no longer dead, that he's alive. It says that she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am sending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And what's, what he's describing here is that her response is that she clings to Jesus, and and, and it actually means to seize or, or clutch onto. And I picture, you know, when your kids grabbed onto your leg and they wouldn't let it go and you had to, like, drag them around, you know? She's, like, in this position of excitement and love, and she's thrown herself around Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm sure he was like, yeah, I know you love me, but I can't stay here. Like, I got to finish this whole redemption thing, which includes me going to my father. And the reason that's important he, is because he's going to his father, and the father is going to confer upon him authority over all creation. So that he can bring, this is Revelation 5, he can bring all of human history to its rightful, just, and restored end. To which we Christians still wait the coming of the king who is going to restore and bring justice. We wait that moment, but he goes to the father to receive that. But notice, again, it's with a single word, Mary. He calls her by name, and she realizes he's alive. I don't think that's by accident, because earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus taught us something about how he works. He said, you know, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and he's talking about people. I know my sheep, and they know my voice. They hear my voice, and I know them by name. And he calls. And you know, the fact of the matter is that Jesus still speaks to people. He still calls them by name. Not necessarily in an audible voice like Mary Magdalene heard, but we're told that, that the Lord speaks today, still. He speaks through friends. He speaks through coworkers that maybe you see and you think, wow, you're different. Something about you is different. There's a kindness in you. There's a hope and a joy in you. You don't have a sour attitude like everybody else in the office. What, what's up? And, and that person testifies, I have a relationship with Jesus. I know Jesus. And, and sometimes in that moment, you hear him say, you. And you sense in your heart the question of, is this real? That's Jesus speaking to you. Um, or a pastor or a preacher or a teacher, God still speaks his word through his gospel, through his people to you and to people, calling them. And the result of that is not just a cold fact that you put into your mental bookshelf. The result of that 
is a realization. A realization that something is true. Now, I'll tell you, in terms of the resurrection itself, you know, you can do an intellectual inquiry and you can find compelling, persuasive historical evidence that he rose from the dead. People like C.S. Lewis and others have tried to um, disprove uh, the resurrection only to find out it's compelling, the historical evidence. But that evidence that leads simply to the acknowledgement of a fact is not itself a realization that he's alive. He's alive. In fact, and I say this to clarify misunderstandings of, of what Christianity is. There are some who, and, it, and the church is largely at fault for this, so is the media, of, of thinking that at the center of this Christian faith are a list of rules that you need to follow. And if that's what you think is at the center, then let me just say you've been misinformed and you missed the heart of it by a long shot. Rather, what's at the heart of our Christian faith is a series of realizations of what God has done for us in Jesus. A series of realizations like, this is real. You are real. His death was real. His resurrection was real. That's the heart of realizing in our hearts by faith that it's real, what God has done. I mean, let me just put this in a question of if. If I simply say I'm a sinful man, that's, which I am, by the way, no mistake about that. My wife will clue you in. Um, if I simply say I'm a sinful man, that's not the same as realizing that I'm a sinful man in desperate need of somebody to redeem me from my guilt and sin. A realization brings one to a place of desperation and need, and I know that I need it. That's a realization. We can say, I, I don't know why that's happening to me, but, or to you, actually. It's louder for you. Um, we can say, I, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. That's different than realizing in our hearts the enormous price paid in blood and death and to realize that we truly are fully and completely forgiven. To simply affirm the cold fact is one thing. To stand on this platform knowing, convinced, realizing, I, I'm forgiven today. I'm forgiven tomorrow and I'm forgiven yesterday because of Jesus died. That's a realization or to say, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead is different than realizing that he is alive. Like to realize that he is alive, you realize how how it reshapes everything? What it means is that, that he's real and you can commune with him. You can relate to him. Why? Because he's alive. The fact that he's alive means that you can call upon him, that he's with you in the hard times, in the, in, in, the, in the great times, in the times of suffering, in the times of joy. He's with me. Why? Because he's alive. The fact that he's alive means that my sins truly are forgiven. We stand here, sing here, free people, because he's alive. When the heart realizes he's really alive. To say that he's alive means that the world is not subject to ultimate chaos and and accidental random chance. What it means is that, that Jesus in his sovereign control is bringing everything to its appointed end. And we can trust him with that and look forward to the hope. Because he's alive, death doesn't reign. That's not the last chapter. It's not the period at the end of the sentence. Love and life 
are because he is alive. Just say that. Just, just, he is alive. The important thing for us today is not simply to come celebrate a fact, although it is a fact, I believe. But it's to realize with our hearts, he is alive. Can you say that with me? He is alive and allowing our hearts to rejoice. And I'm going to pray in one second. And before I do, I want to tell you about the song that's going to be sung next. It's a song sung from first person perspective of Mary Magdalene. All right? And so I want you just to listen to it and soak in the words of someone who has experienced firsthand and realize that he is alive. Father, thank you for your